want to welcome everyone to Redemption Hill Church. If you are visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we have several and we would love to give one to you. If you just want to raise your hand, if you need one, um, Craig can grab one and get that to you. Uh, also, if you're visiting with us today for the first time, uh, we have some little books in the back by Greg Gilbert. It's a little black uh, hardback book. It's called What is the Gospel? We would love to send that home with you as our gift to you. Take that home and read it and understand the message that is in that book. It does a great job of summarizing the good news, the good news that we've sung about this morning, that Christ is the rock of ages. He is the one who saves from wrath. His blood atones for our sin. And he's the one who makes us pure. He cleanses us, makes us new, makes us whole. That's what we are trusting in this morning. It's the work of Jesus. So take that book home with you as our gift. Um, as we prepare for our sermon this morning, I'd like to just say a word of prayer, and then we will begin getting into the book of Genesis. Lord, we thank you this morning for that good news, that Jesus is the one. It is his good works. It is his death and resurrection. It is him, his life, all that he has done. He's the one we're depending on this morning. He's our hope. Even when the life circumstances are difficult and we are confronted with suffering, we're confronted with our own sin and our own weakness, we deal with discouragement and regret, we know that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives. And he is at the right hand of God, seated on the throne, and he pleads our case. He's praying for us. We're comforted by that this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts now to receive your word. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Illuminate the scriptures and conform us to the image of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. So since I became a pastor back in 2010, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of weddings, maybe, I don't know, probably more than a dozen. And one thing that I've learned, even though I'm not an expert, there's a lot of people who have done more weddings than me, but one thing I know is that when you officiate a wedding... For any of you who might get a chance to do that, nobody wants to hear a super long wedding ceremony, okay? Everybody wants it to be short. Giving of the bride, the vows, the commitments, ring, kiss, husband and wife. Now everybody wants to go enjoy the reception, right? That's kind of what is expected. Nobody wants to hear a 55-minute wedding sermon, right? Uh, I've learned that. So, you know, keep that in mind. You've probably been to some long ones, and you've also been to some short ones. Now, imagine a wedding ceremony where certain elements of that wedding, certain, certain um, elements of the ceremony itself were separated by 13 years. That'd be a pretty long wedding, wouldn't it? That is a drawn-out wedding. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, God made some massive promises to a man named Abram, covenant promises. And he, in a sense, walked the aisle to seal this promise. Now, there was no flowers, there was no candles, there was actually sacrificed animals that made up this aisle, but God himself passed down this aisle, in effect, saying to Abram, I do, sealing his promises in blood. God is the one who initiates this covenant, makes it, who keeps it. We, we talk about how it all depends on him. It's a one-ended covenant where it depends on God and his faithfulness to bring all these things to fruition. But what about Abram? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, 13 years later, after that covenant was initiated, it's now Abram's turn to say, I do. And Abram will take upon himself the sign of the covenant, not the exchange of rings, which we use to symbolize the marriage covenant. He will take upon himself the mark of circumcision. 
Now, before I read through the text, and it's a long chapter today, but I just want to give a little bit of an overview. In this chapter, Genesis chapter 17, the word covenant appears 13 times. And you don't have to be you know, a PhD in theology to understand when somebody's repeating something a lot, that is the main point, right? We have to understand that this concept of covenant is essential, not only for Abram here in this story, but this idea of covenant is very, very important for you and for me to understand as well. Why should we pay such close attention to covenant? Why does Moses spill so much ink writing about the covenant here in Genesis, Genesis 15 and 17? And we'll see again, this covenant will continue to be affirmed and confirmed and renewed. Why is it so important? Well, get this. Covenant is the means by which God is bringing the blessing of redemption to a cursed world. God intends to save and restore and redeem and renew. And his vehicle for bringing all of this to pass is the covenant. It's his covenant promises. And that means that this story of the covenant here in Genesis, it's about more than just Abram. This is our story too. It's our story too. It reveals to us the character of God. It reveals to us the purposes of God and gives us insight into what it means to be in relationship with God. So if we don't understand the covenant, we're going to be missing a key plot point in the life of Abram in the whole book of Genesis, a key plot point for the Old Testament, a key plot point for the whole Bible. We're not going to understand salvation. We're going to have a shallow understanding of who God is and what it means to be in relationship with him. So I want us to look deeply this morning into these covenant revelations and consider, consider this. What is it that God wants to show us about salvation? What is it that God wants to show us about himself and about his purposes and about our part in his plan? Well, to kind of just set the table here, I know not everyone's been with us throughout the whole series. Remember back in chapter 16, we saw that after God had made this covenant with Abraham, we saw failure and doubt on the part of Abram and his wife Sarai. Remember, they, they kind of reached for something. They were impatient and they were afraid that God wasn't going to provide offspring. So they took Hagar, Sarai's servant, and Abram had a son through her. We saw their failure there and we saw the pain. We saw the pain that it caused for that family and for Hagar especially. But we saw that God spoke a word of confirmation and grace to Hagar in the wilderness. He said, I am a God who hears. I am a God who sees. And he showed his faithfulness to her. But what about the patriarchal couple? After this failure by Abram and Sarah, I remember both of them stumbled. Sarah pressured her husband. Abram was passive and went along with it. Both of them doubted the promise of God. What about them? Well, here in chapter 17, God comes to Abram to confirm his covenant. That covenant that they were maybe starting to doubt, starting to wonder if God would keep his promises. It's been 13 years. We see in the very last verse of chapter 16 that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then in verse 1 of chapter 17, Abram is here 99 years old. 13 years of silence. Maybe it's easy for us to imagine that in the Old Testament, God is appearing every day to talk to these people. But it's been 13 years since he's heard from the Lord. But now, God comes to Abram to confirm this covenant. Covenant here is a solemn oath guaranteeing his promise. The promise that was made all the way back in chapter 12. The promise that he would bless him and give him offspring and give him the land of Canaan. But God does something more here than simply repeat things that he's already said. 
This isn't just reminding, okay, here's what I said, and I'm still saying it. No, there's actually more here. New details emerge, and as, a- and as God speaks to Abram here in this chapter, he reveals more of his plan, more details. It's as if these promises that are far off and blurry are coming into closer focus. But there's something else that's going on here, too. God also communicates to Abram some covenant obligations, Back in chapter 12 and back in chapter 15, God has told Abram what he is going to do. But now he tells Abram what he must do. There are some obligations here. In verses 1 through 14, we see the communication of covenant obligations. God communicates to Abram what he must do. And there's two elements to this. There are ethical obligations and there are ritual obligations. Just look in verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old... The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God here speaks to Abram after 13 years of silence, 13 years of waiting, 13 years of wondering if God was still going to keep his promise. God speaks, and the first thing he does is tell Abram something about himself. He introduces himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. He says, Abram, don't doubt the promise. Don't doubt the promise, no matter how impossible it may seem, no matter how slow it may seem that these things are coming to pass, remember who I am. This is who I am, El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is who I am, and this is what I promise to do. This is what I promise to do. And in light of all that I have promised, in light of who I am, Abram, here is what you must do, and here is what you must be. He gives Abram these ethical obligations. He says, walk before me and be blameless. You see, God is faithful. He's been telling Abram that time and time again. And now he tells Abram that he desires for his covenant people to be faithful in return. Now, this is not the first time God has commanded Abram to do something. Remember, he told him, leave your home and your land, everything that you know, your family, and go to a land that I will show you. He told him to prepare the sacrifices for the covenant. He had told Abram, walk throughout the land and see all that I will give you. But, but now he tells Abram not just to do something. He says, I want you to be something. He's not just calling him to a specific action but to a way of life. This charge has an ethical force to it. He says, walk before me. Live life in my presence as a servant before a master. I want you to be aware, Abram, of my gaze, and I want you to walk before me, seek to please and honor me in the way that you live. He says, I want your life to be blameless. Blameless. Blameless means that his life is free from deceit, free from violence, free from injustice. The point here is that holiness is required for fellowship with God. It's always been that way, and it always will be that way. It would be that way later for the nation Israel that would come through Abram's, or Abram's descendants. In Deuteronomy 18, 13, as God gives the law through Moses, he says, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. So whether it's Abram as an individual, whether it's the nation Israel, God wants his people to be holy as he enjoys relationship with them. Jesus affirmed the same principle in Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, he says, as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Paul gives the same charge to the church in Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Our relationship with God has ethical implications. God desires holiness. He wants him to be blameless. And he calls him to this way of life for a reason. He says, so that I may establish my covenant with you, so that I might, in a sense, fulfill my covenant with you. Abram, I want you to do this so that I can carry out all the things I have promised to do for you. You see, God plans to bless Abram. The covenant is something God initiates, is something God maintains, is something God brings to fulfillment, but it will not happen apart from Abram's obedience. Remember back in chapter 12, God says, go to a land I will show you. I mean, God is the one who gives him the land, but it won't happen unless Abram goes, right? There must be a response of faith and obedience, and God is calling Abram to that here and now. These conditions of obedience, in a sense, will regulate the degree to which Abram and his descendants will participate and enjoy, enjoy these blessings that God is promising. And notice how Abram responds as God speaks to him. Abram, in verse 3, fell on his face. He doesn't run away in fear. He doesn't stand in defiance. He doesn't cross his arms skeptically. He falls down in an expression of submission and worship. And this is key. It's, it's an example for us, really, that faith and obedience always starts with a right view of God and a right view of self. Abram saw who God was. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And Abram knows who he is, a sinful man who's being called to a life of holiness and obedience, and he falls on his face in submission, falls on his face in submission. Faith and obedience always starts with a right view of God and a right view of self. Abram demonstrates this, and God is pleased because we see how God continues, confirms his covenant, and he informs Abram of other ethical obligations. Look in verses four through eight. God responds to Abram. Abram falls on his face, and God says to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. There, now we can finally call him Abraham. I've done it time and time again on accident. We can call him Abraham now. He says, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. We see some covenant obligations here, not for Abram, Abraham, but for God. First of all, God affirms and confirms his covenant promises. Yes, Abram, you are to walk blamelessly and to walk before me, but keep in mind, I am the one who is going to do all this. I am going to make you great, give you offspring, and give you this land. The covenant obligations mostly fall on God himself. But then God does something else that's significant. Not only has God revealed his name to Abram, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, but now God gives Abram a new name. He says, you will now be called Abraham. Why? What does this mean? Well, first of all, the renaming of Abram, it reflects a relationship, a master-servant relationship. 
For someone to bestow upon you a name means that there's a a measure of superiority and inferiority, of power and dependence, of master and servant, or even parent and child, right? This shows a relationship here, that this covenant is not between two equals who both bring things to the table. It's between God, who is superior, and Abraham, who is his servant. And it shows a sense of ownership, ownership. And it is personal, Naming shows affection. God names Abraham. I'm going to call you Abraham. So it shows relationship here, that God is in relationship with Abraham, but also the name itself is significant. This new name itself signifies the promise. God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and he gives him a name that actually means that. The name Abram means exalted father. And we know before this that Abram didn't have any kids, he and his wife were childless. He had, this is, Abram had been his name all his life. And, and exalted father here probably points to his father, Terah, that he was the son of an exalted father. Abraham, the change here is similar, but it, it sounds like another word in Hebrew that actually means father of many nations. There's some wordplay here. There's some wordplay going on. Every time Abraham heard this new name, every time his wife or his servants or his descendants, or a stranger, or God himself. Every time he heard the name Abraham, he would be reminded of the promise, reminded that he was to be the father of many nations. And every time he used this name himself, every time he introduced himself and said, hi, my name is Abraham. Every time he himself used, those, used that word, he would be, in a sense, affirming his faith in that promise. This is who I am, and this is what God has promised me. No longer would his name testify to his noble lineage. Now his name would testify to the promise of innumerable descendants. And about those innumerable descendants, we see something amazing here as well. That God intends not only to have a relationship with Abraham, God intends to have a relationship with his offspring as well. We see in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. Not only is God binding himself to Abraham, he's binding himself to the successive generations that would come. It says later in verse 7, I will be God to you and to your offspring. We see here at the end of verse 8, I will be their God. Here's the amazing thing, and this is what we need to understand. I said we need to understand what God is doing here in the covenant. God is creating a covenant community. This is about more than just his relationship with Abraham. God is creating a people. As we've pointed out many times throughout Genesis, God intends to bless Abraham and bring blessings to others through him. God has future generations in mind. He has future nations in mind. He has future believers in mind who will place their faith in the God of promise and who will enjoy a right relationship with him and enjoy the blessings of the covenant. That is God's plan. And we see here this plan unfolding and widening to encapsulate more people. Abraham, I'm not just doing this with you, but with more who will come after you. Abraham has ethical obligations. God has confirmed his part, the divine obligations. But then here we get to another set of instructions. Verses 9 through 14, we see the community's ritual obligations. If there's going to be this people, these offspring and these descendants, who enjoy this covenant with God, this right relationship with him, God gives them this ritual obligation, verses 9 through 14. Follow along with me. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, 
you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you look back in verse 9, there's a key little phrase here I've circled in my Bible. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, as for you, as for you. After all of these I will statements that God has, has spoken to him, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, here's my part. He now turns and says, and as for you, Abraham, there are obligations you have as well. Not only these ethical obligations to live a certain way, but I want you to perform this ritual. Abraham is given his part to do. This sign will mark those who embrace God's covenant, those who submit themselves to God, those who bind themselves to this covenant and participate in it. The distinguishing mark of this new community, this new covenant community that God is creating the mark would be circumcision. Now, this practice was not new. The Egyptians practiced a form of circumcision. There was other people groups around Canaan who practiced it, and then there was others who weren't. So the practice is not new, but what God is doing is infusing this practice with new significance. It would now have nothing to do with puberty or nothing to do with marriage. Now, this new significance would point to, it would be a sign that symbolized the commitment to God. That's what it would symbolize, a sign to remind Abraham and his offspring who they were, the people of the covenant, and whose they were. They belonged to God. Why this sign in particular? Why not something more convenient like a wedding ring or something external? Well, we have to understand that this, the specific nature of this sign, it had to do with the nature of the promise. The promise was one of offspring, offspring of seed, descendants. Pastor Kent Hughes writes this, that significantly circumcision involved Abraham's powers of procreation, the area of life in which he had resorted to fleshly expediency and had so failed. Remember the the issue with Hagar. Man's best plans and strengths of will would never bring about the promise. For Abraham, circumcision was an act of repentance and a sign of dependence upon God for the promise. This ritual has new significance, pointing to the promise and reminding Abraham and his descendants and those joined to them whose they were and who they, who they belonged to, their new identity as people of the covenant. Just as the rainbow was a reminder of the covenant with Noah, that never again would the flood destroy the earth. Just as the Sabbath would later become a sign for Israel of God's covenant with them. Just as the ring I wear on my finger symbolizes my commitment to my wife, Sarah. This mark of circumcision would be the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. A sign that was to be willfully performed by believing recipients of the promise. By taking this step, they are in a sense saying amen to everything that God has promised. Yes, God, we believe that. We're identifying with that promise. That is who we are. We're staking everything on your 
word. And notice this. Did you notice what what God says to Abraham? This is not just for Abraham's sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. This covenant community could be entered into by outsiders. Those who were of foreign birth, who'd become part of Abraham's household, his servants, his employees, those who became part of this ever-growing group of people that was gaining a reputation in the land of Canaan. God says, listen, Abraham, it's not just for you. The doors are open. The doors are open to all who would be joined to your household, all who would demonstrate faith and obedience in me. Just as the front door of this covenant community is open, so also we see that there is a back door as well. God warns that whoever does not participate in this ritual will be cut off. Wordplay there. It's very fitting uh, with the rite of circumcision. They shall be cut off from my people, cast away from the covenant community considered unclean because they have broken the covenant. Rejection of this instruction is a rejection of God. To reject God is to remove yourself from the people of God. It's to remove yourself from relationship with God. And so it is to miss out on the blessings that only come from God. So everyone is invited to participate who's there in Abraham's household. But if they don't, if they say no to God's command and instruction, they will be cut off. So we have here the covenant obligations. They've been communicated. Abraham, here's your part. Live a certain way and perform this ritual. And God has reaffirmed his part. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you offspring. But then we see in verses 15 through 22, a second element that comes up in this conversation between God and Abraham. Not only do we have covenant obligations communicated, but secondly, we have the promise of a covenant son promise of a covenant son God said to Abraham verse 15 as for Sarai your wife you shall not call her name Sarai but Sarah shall be her name I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her I will bless her and she shall become nations kings of people shall come from her then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old shall Sarah who is 90 years old, bear a child. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So now here, God is speaking to the issue that is weighed on them for so long, the promise of a son, and he tells him, listen, Abraham, listen, the covenant is going to be perpetuated not through Ishmael, the son that you fathered through your own unbelieving schemes, your son Isaac, who's going to be born at this time next year, through your wife Sarah, even though she's old, he is going to be the one through whom these promises will continue. But first, before God tells him all these details, notice what he does at the start. Not only does he change Abraham's name, he changes his wife's name too, from Sarai to Sarah which is just a variation. The the meaning here doesn't change. Both names mean princess. So there's no new meaning here, but there is a fresh start, a fresh start for her, 
a new beginning, a connection for the first time between her and God. The promise before had always been with Abraham. And he thought, well, perhaps my descendants won't come through Sarai. They'll come through Hagar. Perhaps it'll be through the adoption of my servant Eleazar. But no, now God narrows it and says it's going to be through Sarai. God promises to bless her. Though she was barren, she would have a son. Kings would come from her. Saul, David, Solomon, and later Jesus. And peoples, nations, would come from her. And Abraham responds to this word by laughing to himself. She is too old, Abraham thinks. Seriously, God, wouldn't it just be easier to do this through Ishmael? I mean, he's right here. He's 13. I already have a son. Let's just do this. Then we don't have to wait as long. You know, we often ask God for the easy solution too, don't we? We often ask God to answer our prayers in such a way that requires less waiting. We want the solution that requires less faith. Abraham is no different. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let's just do it this way. This is quicker. This is easier. It's already here. But God says, no, literally, verse 19, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. God says, I'm serious, Abraham. Sarah, your wife, is going to bear you a son. No adoptions, no surrogate mothers, you and Sarah, and Isaac will be his name. Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Well, the same reason that God probably says no to many of your plans and many of my plans, because God's grace and glory will be made known by taking the impossible path. It will not be because of Abraham's scheming that these promises will be fulfilled. It will be because of the miraculous and powerful faithfulness of El Shaddai, God Almighty. Nothing is too hard for him, not even bringing birth out of a 90-year-old woman's womb. It will be made clear that the fulfillment of the promises depends on God's work and not Abraham's. Isaac is all of grace. He is a miraculous gift of God who is received, not manufactured. Although Abraham laughed, as would Sarah later, at the prospect of a son, God smiled upon them and gave them a son. His name would be a reminder of God's miraculous gift. The name Isaac means he laughs. Every time they called his name, they would have been reminded of the miraculous nature of God's provision. And God tells him, listen, Abraham, this time next year, this time next year. I mean, imagine now for Abraham. He received this promise back in chapter 12. But now this undefined promise of offspring, it now has a specified means. The offspring will be through Sarah. This offspring now has a name, Isaac, and even a due date. God is giving him more information, more details. This is the promise of the covenant son. It will be through Isaac that the promised blessing will come. And then we see in verses 23 through 27, lastly, after this communication of the covenant obligations, after the promise of a covenant son, we see here Abraham, for a change, being a good example. It seems to be back and forth. Sometimes he's doubting, sometimes he's believing. Sometimes he's compromising, sometimes he's obeying. And here, in verses 23 through 27, we find an example of covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. Abraham believes and obeys. Starting in verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham and then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. There's a big emphasis here on obedience, right? You're getting the idea. He did it. He did everything he was supposed to, and he did it right away. Verse 27, And all the men of his house, those who were born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. We have here an example of covenant faithfulness. Victor Hamilton comments on this. Biblical faith is never simply a cerebral exercise. Abraham obeys, and he does it. It's not just a matter of thinking, it's a matter of doing. Now Abraham literally has skin in the game. This is a painful and permanent step. There's no going back. He is all in, I believe, and I'm taking the mark upon myself and all who are in my house. Notice that his obedience here is immediate. It says, then, after God went up, he did it, and he did it that very day. And his obedience not only is immediate, It's comprehensive, it's complete, all of them, every male, Abraham, Ishmael, all his servants, all of them. This is to be the response of wholehearted obedience. This is what God desires. Kids, what a great lesson of obedience that is right away and does everything that has been commanded. This is the kind of obedience that pleases God. This is how we demonstrate genuine faith. And notice here that the non-Abrahamic people are included The new community is being formed, a community of faith, a covenant community. Grace doesn't discriminate, does it? It breaks social and economic and racial barriers as all of these people join in together and embrace the mark of the covenant. We see here that God's purposes are moving forward in the making and the keeping of his covenant. God's confirmed this covenant with Abraham, and Abraham has committed himself to the covenant. Abraham has said, in this day, he says, I do. I do. Though he has doubted and stumbled at times, God is faithfully upholding him and pursuing him, and God is pushing his plan forward, not just for the sake of Abraham, but for the sake of the community and for the sake of the generations that would come after. God desires to create and bless and enjoy relationship with a new people. The obligations have been laid out, the son has been promised, and Abraham offers us a beautiful example of covenant faithfulness. So there's a lot of things we could take away from this, but I just want to pull out this morning three principles that I think we can really latch onto as we understand our relationship with God and as we understand God's continued plan, not just here in Genesis, but as it fans out and continues through Christ and into the church and into eternity. Number one, God's promise establishes a relationship and gives us a new identity. That's what God's promise does. God named Abram Abraham, gave him a new identity, and it was all based in the promise. You know, as we follow this story of redemption, God's plan to bless, we see it unfolding into the New Testament, and these covenant plans reach their climax in Jesus Christ. In him, we find salvation. 1 John 2.25 says, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. God promises eternal life. And in this promise, we who believe receive a new identity. And we come into a relationship with God, just like Abraham. We have eternal life through Jesus by faith in his finished work on the cross. He lived a righteous life on our behalf. He died and rose again so that all who believe might be saved. And in Christ, as we come to believe in him, as we receive him as our Savior and as our Lord, you know what he does? He gives us a new name. 
It gives us a new identity as those who have a right relationship with God through him. I love what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. It says, if anyone is in Christ, if you're united with him through faith, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see that? A new identity, new creation. And a relationship, we've been reconciled with God. We need to remember this morning who we are. And we need to remember whose we are. If you're a believer this morning, if you've confessed your sins and and trusted in Christ and embraced the gospel, what that means is that your identity is in Christ. That is who you are. You've been adopted into his family. You are a citizen of his kingdom. You are his disciple. You are a member of his body, a part of his flock. And if you understand this, it's life-changing. It's life-changing. A new identity in Christ. God's promise establishes a new relationship and gives us a new identity. We need to understand this. But secondly, as we've talked about a lot this morning, God's promise creates a new community. A new community. As you believe in the promise, not only are you joined to God, you have a right relationship with him, but you're also joined to his people. The church isn't just an event we attend once in a while on Sunday to hear some guy talk for too long and listen to some people play music and hang out with a couple of our friends. Those are all fine things. But it's because of who we are. We are part of this new community. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race. That's a group. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter tells us, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, when God called Abraham, he grew a new family. Later, he grew through that family a new nation. Later, when Jesus called Peter and Levi and James and John, they left, you know, Levi left the tax desk behind, and, and Peter and James and John, they left their nets behind, and they followed Jesus, and they became a new group, the disciples. When you became a believer, you became part of something new, the body of Christ, the church. Why this pattern? Why is God seeking to create a new community of people? Why doesn't he just have isolated relationships? We have to remember here that this pattern is in part due to what we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember weeks ago, we, we understood what was broken and what was lost at the fall. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were separated from God, and they were also brought into conflict with each other. They're blaming each other, fighting with each other. We see Cain and Abel, not killing each other, Cain kills Abel. But what we see here that sin has ruptured our relationship with God and it isolates us from each other. We saw at the Tower of Babel that because of their rebellion, they were scattered. And now what God is doing is bringing the human race back together again, calling out those who have eyes to hear, eyes that see and ears that hear to come be part of a new community, a new family. God is restoring through the gospel what was lost in the garden in the creation of this new community of people, a people who live under his rule, a people who enjoy relationship with him and with each other and enjoy his blessings. This is God's original design. It was broken back in chapter three. God's rebuilding it. He hasn't given up 
on that original plan that he said was very, very good. He's in the process of reversing what was lost at the curse and restoring it. In Abraham, we see this little miniature kingdom model that's being recreated, and we see it expanded in the nation of Israel and expanded even wider today in the church. This is what God is doing. He's accomplishing what he originally intended, and you and I get to be a part of it. Does that excite you this morning? To think that by coming and being part of a church, a local group of people, you're a part of this covenant community. That's the restoration of what has been lost. That this is the fulfillment of God's purposes and God's plans and God's promises to make all things new. That's exciting. That's exciting. You know, this covenant that Abraham entered into was marked by circumcision. And out of this covenant would grow a new covenant, the covenant at Sinai. God would make a covenant with the people Israel as he gave the law to Moses. And he gave them a law that was to demonstrate what kind of nation they must be, a law that regulated their worship and regulated their relationship with him. But there was a problem with that, wasn't there? We don't do a very good job at being part of this covenant community because we can't abide by the laws. We can't keep them. We can't hold up our end of the deal. The nation Israel's disobedience brought curses, not blessings upon the people of God. The problem was that they needed more than just circumcision of the flesh. As we read through the Old Testament, we see that this this former version of the people of God, as it were, this nation Israel, they needed circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, 14, listen to this. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great and mighty, and the awesome God. As we're talking about being part of this covenant community, we have to understand how does one enter into this covenant community? It's not through good works. We can never do enough. And it's not through the physical ritual of circumcision. What we need is not surgery on our bodies what we need is surgery on our hearts don't we we need a new heart the problem back in the old testament was that the people could never keep the law and they couldn't circumcise their hearts but this old covenant would later be replaced by a new and better covenant and what was included in this covenant was the solution that they needed and the solution that you and i need if we will become part of this new humanity that god is creating the promise of a new heart, the promise of forgiveness of sin. Rather than writing his law on stone tablets, God promised he would write it on tablets of flesh. He would put his law within them. He would pour out his spirit upon them and indwell them. And it's the blood of Christ that inaugurates this new covenant. If you want to be part of this new covenant community, what you need is the work of Christ applied to your heart. No rituals, no law keeping. You need a new heart. And God gives us that through Christ. How do we enter into this new covenant community? Heart surgery that's performed by the Holy Spirit who makes us new and marks us as part of this community. This is a miracle of God's grace that's performed by the Spirit of God and the heart of sinners who repent and believe in the gospel. And this invitation to join this community is extended to all There's no social barriers, there's no racial barriers, there's no economic barriers, it doesn't matter your family background, it doesn't matter your personal history, come and believe the door is open, the door is open, come be part of the family of God, 
Come receive the blessings of salvation. There's a warning here too. Do not refuse the invitation. Do not be cut off because you will not come and bind yourself to Christ through faith. God is gracious and desires a relationship with you. And he wants you to be part of this new family that he is growing. This new people he is forming. Our destiny as the people of God is to enjoy relationship with him. To enjoy his presence in a new creation. When Jesus comes back, he's going to make all things new. Those who reject him will be finally and eternally cut off. But those who have become part of his family through faith who've received a circumcision made without hands, like Paul says, we will enjoy relationship with him forever. So God's promise creates a new community. And then finally, with this we'll close, God's promise has implications for us. It has implications. And the implications are holy living. Just like Abraham was called to walk before him and to be blameless, so too we are called to a holy life. As the new community that God is growing, as his people, who are the recipients of his promises, we need to respond to that by living a certain way. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your, of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Those who are, who are joined to the covenant community today, we are not required to be circumcised physically. That's, that's not a necessary thing. But you know what? We've actually been given a new sign, a new symbol that marks us out as those who have joined this new community. And it's a sign of baptism. It's the sign of baptism. Just as circumcision was the removal of the flesh, it illustrated the removal of sin, baptism now illustrates the washing of our sins away. It is the thing that marks us as belonging to this new community that tells the world who we are and whose we are. And those who have been washed, as it were, by the waters of baptism are called to live like it. If this is who we are, if we've been cleansed and made new, if we belong to Christ and he belongs to us, then this should shape and affect the way that we live. It's not okay just to receive the grace of God and then live any sort of way we want to. That is not God's intent. We see this emphasis again and again and again throughout the New Testament. Colossians 1, so that Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, We exhort each one of you, and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. We're not called to walk worthily so that we can receive his promises. We're called to walk in a manner because we've received those promises. If this is who we are, then we must act like it and live like it. Though salvation does not depend on our good works, though we are not accepted by God because of our holy living, we must give evidence. We must give evidence of our faith, give evidence of, of the cleansing we've received. We must, we must give evidence of our new identity by living lives that are holy. We have a new identity in Christ We've become part of a new covenant community founded on the promises of God that have been fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. 
So we're now called to a holy life that reflects our relationship with God. Let's rejoice in our privilege this morning as those who have relationship with God. Let's, and let's embrace our obligations this morning to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling as we worship him and seek to see this, this community of faith grow. Lord, we look back on the life of Abraham and we're thankful for what you revealed to him. We're thankful for what you revealed to him because as we read these stories, we catch a glimpse of who you are. We catch a glimpse of your grace that you give undeserving sinners the gift of life and relationship with you. You make provision for us. You're patient and gracious even when we fail, even when we stumble. As we read these stories, we see the beauty of what it is that you are doing in blessing and calling this man Abraham to yourself so that you can bless all the families of the earth through him. We're thankful, Lord, for the fulfillment of that promise and the sending of Jesus so that all who believe can be saved and can become part of your people. We ask God that you would help us to walk in light of the privilege we have. Pray that you would give us a passion for holiness and purity, that we would honor you with our lives. We ask God that you would use us to give the good news of this gospel to those who are still outside, those who have not yet taken your mark upon them, those who have not received a new heart, they've not yet been cleansed. I pray that you would use us to grow your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.